Shavuotov, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, so I guess, obviously, very much to Hechel Torah, and I think an abstentia of Shimi Katz, who worked hard to make this event happen. I want to thank also Simcha Katz, my dear friend, who also was very generous in assisting us. Uh, I'm very indebted to our esteemed speakers. I'll get to that in a moment. I'm obliged to volunteers, including Gabriel Glass, and Harry and Judith, uh, Ed Al. They work so efficiently and so graciously. And most importantly, I want to thank my silent partner, who right away saw the wisdom of this initiative, what we're trying to achieve in providing me with the initiative to, uh, for the original event, and now our second one. This is Hanan Cohen. Why are we doing this? There was a chassid who turned to his rebbe, said, Rebbe, I want you to die that my wife should die. What? Yeah, I want you. What are you talking about? He said, listen here. I'm a poor man. If I have to give her a debt, it'll cost me a fortune. But if she dies, it doesn't cost me a penny. He said, what are you talking about? He said, listen here. It's much cheaper for me this way. The Rebbe said, there's a much better way. I have a better, have a better idea. Chazal teach that if you pledge money to tzedakah, and you don't deliver, then within a year, you don't give her, deliver, within a year, your spouse will die. He said, that's brilliant. So this is right around Rosh Hashanah time. They gave him after, and he pledged 500 rubles to tzedakah. The Gavayim came on Sunday and said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving. Said, I'm not giving. That happened Rosh Hashanah time. Half a year later, it's already Purim. He said, Rabbi, Rabbi, it's already Purim. She hasn't even sneezed yet. He said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. It only works if you don't want it to work. Now what am I supposed to do? I suggest you go out and buy her a fancy, delancy gift. Maybe this will help. He was desperate. He bought her a fancy gift. And she was so impressed, he hadn't given her anything from the year they were married. She made him a gourmet meal, which he loved. He bought her another gift, another gourmet meal, another... A year later, half a year later, they were, they were lovers. He says, oh, Rebbe, Rebbe, I don't want her to die. He said, there's a way out. What's that? You have to give the sucker. Not to talk about it, to do it. Confession always helps. So, I'm trying to be involved with Shidduchim, and I've tried many things. And we had this idea, not to talk about it, but to do something. So we're doing something. I even ended up making a movie to do something. Okay, and now to begin, after our beginning. In the Psicha of Amorachai, Ruvulik is mafalpul regarding the reaction of people toward those who learn Torah. It could be and it should be a Kiddush Hashem, but it's also possible to be a Chil Hashem. According to the Kohen, quickly adds to the Bracha, Yer Hashem Hanav Elecha, I got light and light in his face to you. He quickly adds on to the brach of Chaim. Yehuneka. You should be pleasantness in the eyes of those who observe you. The Kohen's brach is that your learning should be a source of admiration, respect, not resentment, and desecration. It's a beautiful shtickle like all of all four volumes of Mordechai, but Rav Willig doesn't realize that he's talking about himself. He's always teaching and paskening Torah, but above all, he's the world's greatest ambassador Masal Matan Bermuna, Dabra Benachas. He's blessed with Chaim, and we're so blessed that he's gracing us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Teller. 
family is indebted to Rabbi Teller on many levels. And so when he asked me to participate in this event, I didn't hesitate for a moment. didn't hesitate for a moment. I said yes right away. You know, I received a compliment from the good rabbi about Maso Matona Bermuna. That's the first question that a person is asked after 120. The next question he's asked is Kavati Til Natora. Gave me a compliment about that too. But the next question he's asked is a Sakta of a period of Arivia. What does that mean? So on a simple level, it means that you, tr- you get married and have children. That's true. That's the simple level. But the Mepharshim point out that a Sakhla of a period of Arivya, you made an ASIC out of it. You try to help others fulfill the mitzvah. You try to help with Shidduchim. Your Shidduchim, that's already an ASIC. That's complicated. To help with Shidduchim, the period of Arivya can extend to other members of Klai Yisrael as well. And that's why I feel it's very important for anyone who has any ability to do such a thing, to do it. Rabbi Teller is a world-renowned shatchan. World-renowned. He has many gifts. This is one of them. I know for myself, I'm not so gifted. My wife is a bit more gifted than myself in this area. We got married, and my wife made right away three shaduchim. Right away, the young men were all my, my group, Y.U. Smicha students, and the young ladies were all her group, individuals who, who came from, from her class. After that, it became harder. She didn't know, nor did I know, all the young men as well, and the young ladies, she, you know, she didn't know. She made a few more over the years, Baruch Hashem. I claim credit, I guess, for one shidduch. Interesting case. It was a, a classmate of mine from, from college. I hadn't spoken to her in a long time. He had his daughter who was a, a brilliant young lady. And he's looking for a brilliant young man. Now that's very nice. That's part of what I want to talk about. I didn't really believe that she was so brilliant. You know, everyone's daughter is brilliant. He sent me a resume. There was a brilliant young man who was hanging around my shul at the time. I knew the family. I knew him. And I said, you know, why don't you call her? He says to me, you know, you're not the first one to think of this. But I always said, no, you say, I'll do it. And they got married. They have children. So that's the one time that I was... It wasn't so hard to put them together. I just... I've counseled many people about Shaduchim. I've broken up Shaduchim. I broke up a Shaduch a week before the wedding. A week before the wedding. Myself and the rabbi on the other side. I was his Rebbe in Yeshiva. And it was her Shul Rabbi. It was a week before the wedding. I said, this, this can't be. Can't be. Thank God. He got married, it took him a little while to get to it, but he got married, Baruch Hashem. I once broke up a shidduch of a 
time of the mine. And I still remember, it was the summertime. He was due to get married in September. He said, you know, I, I have problems and problems. I said, you know, I'm coming home from camp on a certain day. Come that day to my house. Comes to my house, tells me, oh, this, I said, this is insane. I pulled out the Sikhus Mutter of Chaim Shmulevitz, which I'm sure you, those were still the stencil days. And I told him, Chaim's word, at Chushim Ben Dan. Chushim Ben Dan, we're going to read about the Chazal in the upcoming Parshis. You know, Esav doesn't want to let, uh, Yaakov be buried. He claims that the burial plot is his. And there are negotiations and negotiations and negotiations. Show me the piece of document. Documents in Mitzrayim. Naphtali is running and I mean, negotiations with Esav. Chushim and Dan was hard of hearing. He didn't hear anything. He sees there's a delay. The Zayda's not being buried. What's going on over here? Your uncle Esav doesn't let. He took a thing and he banged him, chopped off his head. The head rolled in. It's another story. What was different? Everyone else was suckered into negotiations. The same with this story. This is wrong, and this is wrong, and, this, and I was hearing all at one time. I said, break it up. When this person's father met my father, he said, your, your son saved my son's life. It's very important. It's wonderful. I think there was a, uh, a Broadway play where they said, one of the lines, if I'm not mistaken, my recollection of my youth, playing with matches, a pun, a person could get burned. The wrong match could sometimes be a disaster. And the disaster can be, become a, be apparent right away or years later. It can become apparent right away and they think it's going to get better and get better and get better. It doesn't get better. So you can get burned. Tell all my Talmidim, this is the most important decision of your entire life. Who you marry. It's only true on both sides of the aisle. The single most important decision of your life. Who are you going to marry? I was just visiting Chav uh, He was a Bikacholim visit. We're talking about a certain individual that went to pay Shiva call and a certain yeshiva. He said, you know, his father-in-law went to that same yeshiva. He only was there for eight grades. And then he had to go to you know, those days, public school. Those old, old days. And his brother went to yeshiva for a few more years. But you know what? My father-in-law has children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all Jewish, all from, etc. But the uncle, who went longer to the yeshiva, he has kids that are not from, some kids that are not Jewish anymore. What was the difference? Who they married. It was all who they married. Decision that was made 80 years ago, more. Who you marry? Who you marry? That, that's, that's all this. The most important decision of your whole life. And it's frightening sometimes. How do I make a decision like that? It's, it's very scary. And there are people who have commitment problems, cold feet. These are all problems we face and we shouldn't be embarrassed by these problems. Go speak to somebody. Go speak to someone who knows this partial well. I, I, I'm, you know, I have a bunch of kids. Two of my kids, at the, 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 at the, end, of the, of the end of the line, I was smart enough to suggest to them, Go speak to somebody. We didn't know about these things earlier. We never heard of it. In my time, I never heard of it. But they became a very popular person. If you need to know, I'll tell you. And they both went to that individual. And uh, she, she was, my son and my daughter went to her. And they were, she was very helpful. 
talking to clarifying things. Somebody gets confused in your own mind. You don't know where you're going. Speak to someone. Some people speak to a Rebbe. Many people have spoken to me. I told you I've broken up things and I've encouraged things. I hope I don't make any mistakes. Okay. Not to the topic at hand. Which is, how do you approach the, what they call the Parsha? You know, especially in Israel. Are you in the Parsha? Are you in the Parsha? I'm not in the Parsha yet. The Parsha. Doesn't mean Parsha's Vayishlach. Everyone knows the Parsha is the Parsha of Shiduchim. It's a complicated Parsha. As a matter of fact, the longest Perek in Sefer Bereshis, almost in the whole Torah, is the Parsha of Shiduchim. Parsha's Chayesara. 69 Sukkim or something like that. The whole story is repeated twice. It's complicated, the Parsha of Shiduchim. Not easy. Going back all the way from Ram Avinu's time. Fascinatingly, when Eliezer, son of Avram, a servant of Avram, is asked to look for a shidduch, what's the first thing he does? The first thing, before anything else, he davens. The fir- before he makes any move, the first thing he does is davens. Which indicates that the first thing a person should do when entering the parsha is to daven. I still remember when I became a chassan. So, my mother told her neighbors about, about me, Erot He davened well. There must have been an expression she learned from her European parentage, because that's what it's all about. And thank God, my mother was right. The first thing is tefillah. The very first thing, before any of the ishtadlas. Tefillah. Sincere tefillah. No limit how much tefillah can accomplish, how much tefillah is necessary. Indicating, as all tefillah does, that we're in the hands of Hashem. What has Hashem been doing? The famous Medrash tells us, since we finished creating the world in six days. Mizavek zivugim. You all know the story. The matronis says, well, I can do it myself. And she pairs off all of the, the chevra there. The next one they come into there with the broken arms and broken heads. And they he, he killed each other. Oh, now I understand. You can't just take a male and a female and put them together. It doesn't work that way. Kodesh Baruch was busy being mizavek zivugim. Because it's complicated. It's complicated. Tila. It's the first thing is Tila. What's next? What's next, I believe, is the hardest part of Shaduch. The hardest part. And that is self-evaluation. Before you look for the other, it's critical to determine who are you? Who are you? The very famous Mechaneches was wonderful, wonderful sons. Thank God. They're married. Their children are married. This goes back a long time ago. She tells me, you know, my son, very, very special young man, already then, says to me, Ma, Ima, went out on the date, and the girl asked me questions. 
I never thought about those questions. I never thought about it. You know, this is a kid who was a superstar, a star in my shear, in the yeshiva, was a star before that, the star after that. He never thought about these questions. Because, you know, he just goes, thank God, no bumps in the road. It was just a, a, a superstar. And then listen, this young lady, what do you think about this? Ooh, I never thought about it. Which taught me an important lesson. Self-evaluation, introspection. Who are you? Before you're looking for who's the other, who are you? We sometimes fool ourselves about who we are. It's very dangerous. Very dangerous. I'm sad to say this, but sometimes our self-evaluation is way off. We think too highly of ourselves. Sorry to say it. You know, once I had a Talmud, he was insisting on a woman who was very good looking. I said to myself, look in the mirror. <laughs> but that's just true on a superficial level. Superficial level. You end up marrying a fine young woman, but When my Talmud would tell me that one woman is not good-looking enough, I'll accept it. The second one, I tell them, you're an apicurus. Apicurus? Yeah, apicurus. It says in Chazal, in the Gemara, Benos Yisrael no say. Jewish daughters are pretty. Now, one exception, I know it's an exception. Two, you're an apicurus. You, you don't know how to evaluate what's nose. You're saying they're not nose. Now you should look in the mirror. But I, when I say look in the mirror, I really mean it much more metaphorically. This individual is not so A, B, C, or D. And how about you? You have this, uh, this Milo? Oh, he thinks that he's, uh, he's, he's just Mr. Perfect. Look in the mirror. Introspection doesn't just mean, in the case of my Mechanechus, where the guy was really a superstar, but what are you looking for? You don't think about these questions that the girl's asking you. It's much more than that, because most of us are not superstars. And we have flaws. Everyone has some flaws. Some of the flaws are greater than the person imagines. What do you do about it? Of course, try to fix the flaw. Try to fix the flaw. I didn't think about it until now. It didn't make a difference until now. Now it makes a difference. Try to fix it. You can't fix it. Well, don't expect perfection on the other side either. These are all very, very important, basic, basic lessons that have to be learned by every individual in the parasha. The parasha can be frustrating. You know, kosha zivun kikriyas yamsuf. Ever knows that Gemara. Ever knows that Gemara. You know, in Kriyas Yamsuf, Chazal tell us that there were 12 Shvatim. They went in 12 different paths. Some had a very short path. Longer, longer. Like concentric circles. So, in my house, someone took a very short path. And some had a very long path. One of my children was really the longest path of them all. 
the longest path at the moment. But he was, you know, what can I say? By Kriyas Yamsev it says, Vayoyer es halayla, Pasha's b'shalach. What does that mean? So the Mepharshim point out like this, that Klai Yisrael suffered terribly for over 200 years in Mitzrayim. When they left, they saw amazing Shechina. Shifcha layam. So more than Yecheskel and Buzi in Maishim Mekovah. They saw unbelievable. And the Mepharshim point out, Vayoras Adayla, it's the beginning. You see the Oro Sholi Akris Hayamim. The time of the Mashiach, blessed lover. They saw a flash of it at Kriyas Yamsuf. And they realized, Vayar es Halayla, the deep dark night of Mitzrayim, is all the Tova. All the terrific events of Mitzrayim, and some global master plan. They saw that night, that somehow or other, it's all, all for the good. But you understand very well, that during the 200 years plus of Mitzrayim, no way they could see that. The Gemara tells us in the Sechta Psachim that nowadays on good news you say Atova Metiv and on bad news you say Dianemis. Loss of Lavo will only be Atova Metiv. That's loss of Lavo. If someone hears bad news today I'm a big bow bitochen I'll say Atova Metiv that's a brachal of Atola. But loss of Lavo that's loss of Lavo. Right now it's bad news. It's very difficult when going through the very long, circuitous route of Kriyas Yamsuf that some people have to go through to see in real time that it's, it's all for the good. You can be frustrated by the, we call the one and done. Well, who made this shidduch? It's ridiculous. Although I always try to say, give it a second chance. Always. Today, at my, at my Shabbos table today, the person said, that was, was ridiculous, made no sense. And a very great educator told him, Give it a second chance and you end up marrying her. So, always try to give it a second chance. I mean, we say always, never say always or never, but if you're in doubt, even the slightest doubt, give it a second chance. I know someone, a family, that, you know, now they have cell phones. During the date, he said, get me out of here, this is ridiculous. You know, they go to the bathroom and you get told, you know, and he married her. So, you know, <laughs> so, give it a One of my kids, in this long route in Kriya Siamsev, every single time, whether it was a one and done or a long thing which broke up, and there were a couple of each, more than a couple, he said, Abba, we're one step closer. What an attitude. What an attitude. <laughs> Amazing. In real time, he said, but one step closer. It be very frustrating. Very frustrating. It reminds me of that song and the journeys about riding up the turnpike. Oy, oy. The Shabbat said, this time it will be different. Yeah, I heard it so many times. <laughs> Just once more. I said, but you never know. It could be different. I'm not going to go back to the tried and true because you'll know it already. But you're supposed to look for the Shidduch as Midas But there is a quote from the stipler that they asked him what are the three most important things to look for in the Shidduch. And the way it was reported, he said as follows. A mensch, 
a mensch and a mensch. That's it. Then afterwards, it's a mensch, you can talk about other things, you know, the, the details. That we know this, of course, from the same parsha of Eliezer, looking for the Midah of Chesed. And also, if you look on the Kliyakar, for the Midah of Tzniyus, which goes together. We've got tremendous Tzniyus. You know, in our family, we have an allergy. The allergy is called, we're allergic to, self-promotion. It's a family trait. My, my children are just, just allergic to it. Sadly, now in today's world, with all these resumes, we didn't have resumes when we were growing up. It, 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 if it smacks too much of self-promotion, it, it's a turn-off. I understand the need for it, and I'm not here to criticize, because it's a difficult passion. But some of the stuff goes over the top. Over the top. When I told my Tamidim, look for the chesed and sneer, so the Tamidot would ask, what do I look for? Guess what I answered? You got it. Chesed and sneers. Exactly the same thing. You think sneers is how, how long his sleeves are? No, no, no. no that's a detail. Internal sneers. Modesty. What's your demeanor? Are you yatsonis? You're a gadabout? Are you more refined? This is true both men and women. Hatsneh was told to all human beings, not even all Jews. Odomatov. Every person. The refinement is godliness. Kodesh Baruch is is kel mistater. My time is almost up. So I just want to end by answering a question which was posed to me by one of the attendees as soon as I walked in. And I said, I can give you an answer from this week's parsha. So, rabbis like to talk about the parsha. Now I'll talk about the parsha for a minute. The question was raised, a very serious question, which of course transcends Shaduchim. It was asked with respect to Shaduchim in particular. Where do we draw the line between Bitochon and Ishtadlus? Bitochon means I trust in Hashem, it's all going to be good. Ishtadlus means I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing everything possible. My answer to her was I cannot give a one word answer. Depends on who the person is. I gave an example of an individual, a very distinguished Rav, no longer with us, who had quite a number of daughters. When they became of age, the people in his circle, his colleagues, who had also had daughters, were looking here and calling there, and you know, you know, it goes, scouring the earth to find the right one. And this individual said, Kodesh Baruch Hu is good. The Shidduch will come to the front door. Now, Rabbi Teller once told me, I'm quoting you, he told me if it's accurate, that if you have sons, they're coming, they're calling, they're this, they're that, this. You have a daughter, you're lucky if you get a faint knock. I think that was the words that Rabbi Teller told me many years ago. This had daughters. Did nothing. Sure enough, there was a faint knock, and that's how his daughter got married. To Rosh Hashiva, no less. That's one extreme. This man had unbelievable bitachon. I knew the man. Incredible bitachon. He went through the Holocaust. and uh, He had bitachon like you can't imagine because he saw that he was, the fact that he was alive was only because HaKadosh Baruch made innumerable miracles. On the other hand, they're individuals. So let's be honest. They don't, they don't have it. They just don't have it. They, they, they don't have such a level of trust in Hashem. 
I'm not here to criticize them. They have to engage in more, in more hishtadlis. Whatever that means, calling and, you know, all that stuff. What is that in the parsha? So I told her something, and I showed her a glass, and I took a chumash. It's, it's printed in the stone chumash. Page 220. We know, Chazal tells us in the Medrash, that Yosef, the end of the parsha, Tells us the, uh, Sarah Mashkin, after the, he interprets his dream, you know, do me a favor, Sarah Mashkin. I just, I gave you an interpretation of your dream. In three days, you'll be reinstated. You know, do me a big favor. Remember me. Do me a chesed. Tell power to get me out of here. For this, he was sentenced to two years in jail. What did he do wrong? Wouldn't you do that? You're stuck in jail. You're a little protectia. Do the guy a favor. Get you out of jail. He quotes this. He doesn't say where he got it from. I know it from the base of Levi. Faith and trust cannot be defined with exactitude. There are infinite degrees of faith and trust. I'm glad I gave you that answer. I gave you exactly this answer and I gave you this, but he says it better than me. Someone as great as Yosef, who knew with certainty that Hashem determines everything, should not have sought the salvation to the cupbearer or any other human agency. The best thing doesn't really say that. He says, it's absurd to think that this cupbearer was going to really do something for you. He was, he was a guy, he didn't really care about you. It was an absurd ishtadlis. When it didn't make sense. Had it made sense, had there been, a, for example, a Jewish prisoner who was let out, the same ishtadlis, in my opinion, would have been good. That's what the Beis Halevi had. They don't say it exactly the same way. But it was an inappropriate ishtadlis. For a lesser person, it would have been sinful to ignore the opportunity presented by the imminent funeral of the cupbearer. He would be hypocritical to sin and wait for miracles. Then have sufficient faith and trust to do so. But Yosef was so great. So that's why he shouldn't have relied on any human, especially his immoral, arrogant fellow prisoner. I will say, he shouldn't have relied on the immoral, arrogant fellow prisoner to another human he could have relied on. That's how the base of Levi, if I recall, has it. That's the difference between the Bitochen and the Shtadlis for every single person. It's different. Different. You know who you are. You have to figure it out. If you're unable to make a decision whether something is right or wrong, don't be hesitant to ask. I told you before, I sent the professionals. But on the first step, hopefully you all have someone you can talk to. Your parents, maybe in certain cases, the best people to talk to. Someone's the worst. Because your parents have an inflated idea of who you are. I guess I should end with a little halacha. It says in Shulchan Aruch and Ramah and Yoridea, you're not required to listen to your parents in Shaduch. Never knows. The sources of Maharik. Shubas of Maharik. If you look more carefully, you see it's not so simple. What's the case of the Maharik? He's talking about a case of a fellow who was very not so great. Not so great. And he was involved with a, with a, with a young lady in an inappropriate fashion. Precisely how inappropriate, that was a matter of discussion. Rumors here, there, and everywhere. So he wanted to marry her. So the father said, you're going to marry that slut? That woman of ill repute? She was in ill repute because of him. Because of the son. But, uh, my son's a tzaddik. He should marry this girl. Don't listen. 
Because he doesn't have it right. It was a perfect shidduch. They were both on the same level of immorality, whatever it was. That's when you don't listen to a parent. But some as a parent gives you advice which is completely correct, justified advice. Then you really should be listening, even according to the Marik. How do you know? You ask your rabbi. The rabbi passes the child. Who's rabbi? Not the parent's rabbi, the child's rabbi. The child's, it's his child. If the father is wrong, there's no kibbutz because the father, as the Chazanish writes, is required to be mevatla ritzono. So, your parents is a first line of who to talk to. If that doesn't make you happy, talk to your rabbi. Everyone should have a rav. Could be not be a rabbi in your shul, be someone you know from high school, someone you know from seminary. Or you can always call Rabbi Teller. I don't know if you give me out your number. Someone who has experience in this field. Hashem, each and every person in this room and all those whom you're representing. I see parents representing their children. I see young people who represent themselves. Whoever it is, please, you listen to the words that I said, Rabbi Glasser will say, what Rabbi Teller's film was going to say. Hopefully you'll learn more. By learning more, you will all be able to Build each and every person a bias, Nemon, the Yisrael. I just want to mention that in the event that we ask that people give your email address, the purpose of this is simply because if we're going to do an initiative like this again, it's very hard for me. I have no social media, I'm very primitive. And for me to send emails, if you're getting something tonight, I hope I can turn to you in the future. If I make another one, you'll be able to notify other people. That's the purpose. And if you haven't given one, please submit afterwards. Okay. Hanukkah is about spreading light and vanishing darkness. Outreach is the name of the game. And that's why Bedavka Madlikim Bachutz. Rabbi Glasser said one of his typically beautiful shiurim on, that we are the menorah, the vehicle to enlighten the world. And who do we have in our generation who can enlighten so impactfully, so humorously, so intelligently than Rabbi Glasser? Thank you so much, Rav Teller. It's an uh, honor to have been asked by you to contribute this evening. Birshus, Mori Barabi, Harav Willig. I have no idea why I uh, need to be here after hearing from uh, Rav Willig. Rav Willig is a Rebbe for many of us in this room, certainly for our family, for many, many years. Uh, the first sugya that I ever learned from Rav Willig was Bishul. <laughs> So until now, you heard from the Kli Rishon, and now you're going to hear from a Kli Shani. So to me, you could dip a little challah, you can, uh, you know, if you're a little uh, Kale Abishal, you'll get something, but, uh, but it's an honor, and it's a pleasure, and it's uh, a tremendous covet, um, and thank you. I am always described by my wife as a creature of habit, and 
pretty much like clockwork, every eight or nine months, I make my way to the exact same store to buy a new pair of shoes. I walk into this store, I think it's in Paramus, you know, when it's not closed for Sunday or legal holidays or just because it's New Jersey. And I walk into the store and I walk up to the shoe salesman and every single time I essentially tell them, that's the shoe, it's on the rack. And I tell them, that's the shoe I want. And almost 100% of the time, the guy comes out of the back with eight boxes, none of which are your size. He sits down and he starts telling you, hey, you know, you know you're a nine and a half, but I'm going to give you an eight and a half or a ten and a half. And he starts pulling, putting this shoe on your foot and it's not fitting and it's not going. And he takes out the shoe horn and he's pushing and pushing and pushing. And you're like bleeding and you're like, he's like, don't worry, it's supposed to be this way. Finally gets the shoe on your foot and he says, look, look, walk, walk. Three and a half feet, you'll see it's perfect. And you walk your three and a half feet and your shoes look in that little floor mirror that you can't really see anything in. And I walk out with the exact same pair of shoes each and every time. Finally, my wife says to me, why are you always doing this? You know that you can buy shoes online. So I said, I never thought of shoes as something you buy online. I never bought clothes online in my life. So she sends me to a website called, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, Zappos.com. I get on to Zappos.com, and there are 652,000 different types of shoes. So what do I know? So I start looking page by page, next page, next page, next page. Finally, like an eight-year-old walks in, and they're like, you know, there's a filter, so you can look at fewer pairs of shoes. And I look on the side, and what you can do is check certain boxes. And by checking these boxes, you can reduce the amount of shoes that are put in front of you for consideration for what to purpose, for what to purchase. So I start, I only want black shoes. I only want lace shoes. I only want rabbinic ugly shoes. I only want, I need a little height, you know what I'm saying? I want a shoe with a a deep soul. I'm a very spiritual person, like something that, that pushes me up a little bit. And I start clicking and clicking. I only want shoes below $68, whatever I want. By the time I'm done, I am looking at basically one pair of shoes. And the truth is, this is our world. We live in a world of customization. We are presented with such a wide range of possibilities. And we have tools and we have abilities to narrow those possibilities to precisely what we believe that we want. And as a result, we only expose ourselves to those unique opportunities that we think are exactly what we're looking for. This is how we engage music. When I was a kid, you'd buy an album, and some of the songs you hated, and some of the songs you loved, and some of the songs you hated, you came to love. And no one would buy such an album today. You go online, and you choose exactly, precisely, the tonality you want, the spirit you want, the words you want, the performer you want, and everything is customized to perfection. And very often we bring this attitude, this perspective, 
into this world of trying to identify what Rav Willig described as the most important decision of our life. And so we walk into the world and we begin to filter. Well, we want this and we don't want this and we want this and we don't want this and we want this and we don't want this. And before we know it, we have narrowed the field to some idyllic representation of a human being that probably doesn't even really exist, except on a piece of paper that is not telling the truth. And we begin to engage in a process that results in deep frustration, a lot of consternation, and does not really provide the range of possibility that could allow us to build a life in a future that is one that has richness and texture and a sense of more than just fitting this circle into this, this space, but rather the possibilities of who our partner in life could ultimately be. There is a very big difference between having attributes that we're looking for, like Rav Willig spoke about, chesed and snios, and filtering the field based on criteria. To be too discerning, to be too specific. And the truth is that part of this process is learning about ourselves because there are aspects of ourselves that as we enter this space, we may appreciate as our priorities and the defining elements of our personality and what we'll present as the aspects of compatibility that are necessary to figure out who we want to spend our life with. But as we go through this process, we suddenly discover that there is a broader reality that characterizes who we are. And to recognize within ourselves that there are aspects of us that perhaps we did not appreciate before that are real, that are tangible, that can contribute to our partnership in life and that can relate to and balance with all of the other possibilities that we encounter of people we are looking for. People evolve and we grow. And circumstances and experiences during this process also cause us to evolve and to grow. And so sometimes we'll start dating with one image of what we're looking for. And if all we do is select the filtering software so that we're only presented with that, then it could be we will remain in that very narrow space. But if we allow ourselves to be a little broader, to recognize that new experiences and new people and new conversations and new life moments that happen while we're going through this process, we are not only dating in this period of our life. We are engaged in a myriad of different growth opportunities that characterize our daily experience. And they are also propelling us forward and helping us evolve and helping us change. And so we shouldn't be afraid not only to know ourselves, but to re-explore ourselves. And sometimes HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the opportunity for this process to take a little bit longer, because there's something that He wants us to find in ourselves. Sometimes there's a matona when it takes a little bit longer. That the early, more immature version of ourselves, or our perception of what we're looking for, would actually not have chosen the ultimate individual that's going to make our partnership in life one that is of such robust spiritual, emotional, and existential joy and happiness. Because we think that we are just who we are in the moment. 
And when that happens, when we adjust our expectations, whether it's us as parents, or whether it's those who are engaged in Shidduchim themselves, it's not settling. It's not desperation. It is evolving and expanding our reality. So one of the things that we need to think about is what of what we are searching for, of what we are looking for in another person, what is sort of on our core list and our core elements of what we're looking for? What are our needs? What do we need in another person based on our personality profile, based on how we grew up, based on our life experiences? And what are elements of personality that resonate with us perhaps more naturally but they aren't necessarily in the category of core expectations and core needs in order for us to be compatible with another human being. And very often in life, we have to discern what's a need, what's a want. We need a mensch. Do we need someone who's brilliant? Well, we want someone who's smart. Do we need them to be very intellectual? Would we like them to be very intellectual? Do we want them to be musical? Do we need them to be musical? We are all individuals. And we are all a product of our own upbringing, of our own internal personalities, of our own life experiences. And the more we, as Rav Willig mentioned, know ourselves. And knowing ourselves is not just knowing what level we're on. It's most importantly knowing what aspects of ourselves is defining to who we are, and which aspects of ourselves is open to development and evolution. And we could share a life with someone else. So when we're presented with an idea, as parents or as those who are dating, and at first glance we say to ourselves, ah, this is not for me, or this is not for my child, this is not, we're over here and they're over there, we're more laid back, they're more intense, we're more, I'm learning some of these words from my kids, um, hectic, Know about hectic, right? We're more out of town, they're more interesting, right? I mean, there's, there's all these terms that are loaded with all sorts of information and judgmentalism and unhealthy characterization of people. We're more this, they're more that. To take a step back before we pass on something or before we engage something and to ask ourselves, is this core to who I am? Is being in town, is living in New Jersey part of my identity, Lowell? Or is it where I happen to be? There are Bosha for me in New Jersey and I pay this person's from Cincinnati. Like maybe we can make a beautiful life together. What aspects of ourselves are core and what aspects of ourselves are open to the possibilities of a more expansive approach? And to be able to differentiate between the two. When we're thinking about differences in between describing someone and understanding someone, this is also very important. And that is, very often we will start to classify people and their attributes and who they are. They have strengths and they have weaknesses, right? These are the phone calls that we start to say, tell me about the person's strengths, tell me about their struggles, and we're looking for some sort of, you know, a perfect package of a human being that asserts so much fortitude and so much clarity and so much stability and is not at all undermined by what we perceive to be what is often just in the course of natural human experience, the ine inevitability of life. But we don't want, you know, we're trying to minimize 
what it means to have a weakness. And one of the things that we need to understand in life is that very often what we perceive as a weakness is actually at its core a source of a much greater transcendent strength. That we think someone, you get on the phone with someone and they tell you, that the problem with them is they're, they're, they get very stressed, they're very cautious. And then you find out, why are they cautious? Why do they get stressed? Why are they laid back enough? Why don't they just go with the flow? Because they, were, they had a, an, an incredible experience in their life, they were involved in a massive accident, they had all sorts of challenges to life and presented all sorts of adversity to them, all of which they overcame, and their strength and fortitude as they emerge from those experiences is unparalleled. And now you're looking at a human being who, yes, part of the collateral damage of such an experience is their personality may have a little ex- accentuated stress and uh, anxiety. But the totality of this person is someone who's nuanced, is someone who has life experience, is someone who is prepared to handle the inevitable challenges of life. And so very often, we start to classify things. This is good. This is what's good in a spouse, and this is what's bad. This is what's good in a partner that I'm I'm looking at, and this is what's bad. And very often, if we take a step back, and we ask ourselves, where, what is the source of this? Why? Then we begin to understand that a lot of what makes people successful and happy in life is not whether or not they've only been through things that are good or things that are bad. It's how they've contended with them and how they've dealt with them and how they've grown from them. We also are looking for people with a growth mindset. Sometimes you have someone who's, I want the person who's most advanced in learning. You know, somebody once told me the the, uh, Alan Fagan, he used to be the president of the Orthodox Union. So he was the managing partner of Proskauer Rose, a very, very prominent law firm. And he told me once that when he was the managing partner, they were hiring many lawyers. And he told me that if he had two lawyers before him, one went to Yale and had the pedigree and he was a legacy and he was amazing, high LSATs, great grades, top of his class, law review. And one who was a cop and went to night school and also scored very high on all the tests. You know they had legal acumen and high intelligence. He told me he always went for the night school guy. Because when the two show up to life, when the two show up to work, the one who had everything handed to him, everything came easy, so he continues to try to live life in a way that makes it easy. And the other one is in the office till 2 o'clock in the morning. Very often what we think from a pedigree perspective and from a resume perspective is a weakness, is actually a manifestation of incredible strength. And so it's not just about not being judgmental, it's also about understanding where people are coming from. I want to share with you a a beautiful insight from a Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi writes the following, Ein ribua b'sheshes yamei b'reshes, which means there are no squares in the natural world. I don't know here if anybody is into nature. Our family... One of the things that we do together as a family, which definitely was not on my resume, is we RV. So we rented a 32-foot RV and drove it from Passaic to Los Angeles. Now, 
If you want to see what your marriage is made of, <laughs> stick your whole family in a truck for two weeks and sleep in RV parks. This past summer, we did it again, 2,400 miles of the Pacific Northwest, Northern California, Oregon. Oregon is like one of the most beautiful states. It's like probably what God was trying to do when he made New Jersey. It was, it's gorgeous, and then southern Washington, it was beautiful. We drove the RV, and you have to understand, like, like from people, th- there is nothing that will ever expel from the consciousness of the Jewish people the fear of running out of food. When we pull up to this thing, so just so you understand, like there's our family, and there are all the other families. Our family, six suitcases. 14 duffel bags, like, you know, the Sternberg, like, big, you know what I'm saying? Like, other families, beer, Tic Tacs, ready to go, right? A little backpack, Jim, Jane, their son, their 1.6, and the dog, they're all in the RV, they're gone. The glassers, who's got the games, who's got the nosh, who's got the popcorn, who's got the sandwich maker, who's got the grill, like, it was, it was unbelievable. And when we got back to return these items... So they allow you to leave closed items so that the next people could just take them so they don't get thrown out. Especially in California, very environmentally conscious. So our RV unloads and it's mommish like tuna fish and granola bars and kind bars and ice cream. And it's, it's like, it's, it is like a Pesach hotel buffet that came out of this truck, right? And the guy next to us, Dan, very sweet guy, very nice guy, he puts on to the thing a few Hershey bars, and that's it, right? So this is, so we took our kids all throughout nature. We went to Yosemite, and we went to the national parks in Utah, and we went to, and nature's beautiful, and nature's amazing. But nature is not symmetrical. When you go out into the world, what you see is what makes Yosemite beautiful. It is the contrast and the way in which a river harmonizes with a rock formation, with a forest, with a, with a path, with a, with a background of a, of a meadow. And all these things fit together, but none of them are perfectly aligned, right-angled squares. That's the statement in the Yerushalmi. The beauty of nature is that it's curved. It's imperfect. It's not totally logical. This one goes this way, this angle goes that way. If you walked up to a rock formation and it's just total squares, there's no beauty in that. The beauty of nature is that it's all over the place and it allows your imagination to fill in the space. It allows you to appreciate the nuance of existence. And so when you walk at nature, and yet, and yet, even though we know that life does not fit into a box. We are constantly trying to construct that very box to define the characteristics that we are looking for in life. I heard once from, uh, on this Yerushalmi from Rav Ribiat. He says it's interesting because so much of what we use in Yiddishkeit is squared. Tefillin are squared, tzitzis are squared, the mishkan is squared, the aron is squared. And he writes, because our values, our ideals, do have definition, do have parameters. But we have to know that life is not in a box. You don't know what your life journey is going to be. 
You don't know what the challenges, the opportunities are going to emerge. We have no idea. Life is unpredictable. So if we're trying to essentially engage the prototype of a human that has all the characteristics that we think fit into the description of the perfect compatible person for right now, what we are essentially doing is creating a box that bears no resemblance to the way in which our life is going to actually unfold. Things happen in life. And when you sit with couples that are going through real life, what you discover is that it is not necessarily the perfect points of compatibility that really predict their capacity to deal and have resilience in confronting the challenges of life. It's the ways in which they have developed the ability and the capacity to contend with the unexpected when things go wrong. How, how much do you anticipate and expect perfection? So when we're thinking about spending time with someone, when we're thinking about who we're looking for, and we're just being so specific and so rigid and so, this is exactly what we need. We have to understand that there are aspects of people that themselves are not so straight, that there's a, certain, there's a certain tone, there's a certain sense that imperfections are also part of the beauty of the human experience. And much of our growth that we are going to go through in life will come from those imperfections. And much of our success and our impact in the world will emanate from those moments of challenge, from those moments of curve. There is great beauty in the way in which we deal with our life and with our journey. And so therefore, when we're thinking about and spending time with people that we are considering in terms of what we are looking for from our life, Let's not choreograph every aspect of this engagement. Let's not only spend time in the context of dates that have such defined, we're doing this, and then we're doing this, and then we're doing this, and then we're doing this, and the third date is this, and the fourth date is this, and the sixth date is this, and you can't go here, you can't go there, but you can go here, but you can go there. Let's recognize that's not reality. Our life is not going to unfold that way. Our life is going to unfold with the unexpected. Leave space in these engagements for the unexpected. Leave space to see how the individual relates to and deals with the unexpected. Leave space for real conversation that's not simply planned in terms of what are your goals, what are your goals, that are just interviews, but a fluidity that allows a person to reflect on what's gone on in their life and how it's happened and give permission for people to talk about their challenges and what they've dealt with. Because if the entire purpose of a date, even in the very beginning, is only to impress, then you're getting a very artificial presentation of a human being. Because nobody's life is square. And nobody's life is a resume. Life is complex and it's messy. And it's not always so clear. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have a, a plan, what we're going to do for the afternoon, but leave a little bit of revach, a little bit of space. What happens when uh, things didn't go as anticipated? What happens when, uh, I baruch Hashem, I volunteered to run out of gas? You know, this made a tremendous impression. You know, how do you deal with the total disaster of a, right? I actually volunteered to do that quite a few times, right? So the... 
And this is part of what we're, this is part of what we're searching for. And the final point that I'd like to make has to do with just the rhythm of communication and connection that we are looking for and that we are trying to assess and also trying to develop and cultivate and nurture over the course of the dating experience. And that relates to the importance and the centrality of communication. What a resume or what a description or what a friend or a parent or a rabbi or a rebbe shares about another human being is static. It is a snapshot of who they are. The way in which they can communicate, the way in which they can emote, the way in which they can engage in the informality of dialogue and, and experience, that ultimately is much more telling about who they are and who they will be over the course of our life experience. A very fundamental dimension is the ability to express appreciation and gratitude, the story that Rav Teller uh, told earlier. There is so much that creates tension and challenge in the course of a marriage that is related to the inability of people to not only communicate what they need and what they want, but also to validate and express gratitude and appreciation for what it is that they're getting. It is the underlying language of human relationships. Here is what I need. I want to give it to you. Thank you. Not just a formality of thank you, but an expression and a disposition of gratitude, a recognition that I'm growing because of you. I'm benefiting from you. And that is something that we're looking for in the context of not only compatibility, but also just the person's, uh, the essence of their character. Are they someone that appreciates and recognizes others? Or are they always being critical? Are they always finding out what's wrong in the environment that we're interacting with them in? Forget us. Of course, they're complimenting us. But as they look around, the food is late. The food is burnt. I can't believe this. I can't. Or is there a certain tolerance level and an ability to deal with the vicissitudes of life and to appreciate and recognize when something good is coming towards us? Be'ezus Hashem, Kodesh Baruch should give all of us the strength to be able to learn, as was mentioned by Rav Willig, more about ourselves, to summon the bitachon, the faith in the Rabboni Shalom and his role in all of this and in this experience, and to be able to build the future homes of Am Yisrael. Have a wonderful, wonderful night. Okay, everyone, we're going to just want to remind everyone on the way out, there's some carbohydrates and drinks, and uh, we're going to see a film. <laughs>